In this episode, we cover the current state of email marketing, agency life, and freelance marketing. I spoke with Chase Diamond and he brought the heat. We even got into AI and how it's going to change the marketing game. Chase is a marketing expert building his agency called Structured, but he's also a consultant and runs many other businesses. So let's dive right into the episode. I, I want to start with agency side of things because you have a lot going on, right? Maybe you can briefly touch on this of all the different businesses you have just so that I can get an idea of, or we can all get an idea of like what you're really working with. And I want to dive into how you're running these things. But first off, if you wouldn't mind just giving an overview of what you are working on. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. I'm actively trying to cut back, but my largest business, my main business is an e-commerce marketing agency. So we're about 139 people across about five or six countries. So we've got folks in the US, Canada, Philippines, et cetera. And we're working with about a plus or minus about 150, 160 D2C kind of e-commerce brands. All of our brands do a minimum of about a million dollars a year online and then upwards to hundreds of millions of dollars. So that's the main largest business. And outside of that, I have like this portfolio of companies under like the personal brand umbrella that includes things like consulting, affiliate, newsletters, socials, courses, a whole events, a whole laundry list of things, growth services, et cetera. So I have like one primary business and then under kind of my own personal company, there's like between four to six ways or five to seven ways at any given time that I'm monetizing data and audience and eyeballs. Yeah. And so across all those things, how are you actively managing your time? So if you have, let's say the agency as a priority, but then all these yeah. other things that are still important. How do you go about running the agency, but also juggling that with freelance work, consulting, building your audience, all that stuff? Yeah, it's, it's a lot. The lucky thing and the fortunate thing at the agency, we're at a point now with the size of the team where we have like different layers of people, right? We've got like myself and my other partners. We've got like VPs or heads of departments. Then we've got like managers, associates, analysts, et cetera. So that business is a fairly run oil machine where there's just so many levels and layers now where. I really don't have to do all that much in the day to day. And with that, a lot of my role across every single thing I do and every business I own really is things like content, revenue, traffic, leads, eyeballs. So because I wear the same hat across all the businesses, it really is like I'm working on every business at the exact same time in a sense where if I'm posting on LinkedIn or Twitter or sending a newsletter, I'm technically working on a specific channel that maybe favors one business more than the other. At the end of the day, all the things I talk about and all the things I do are meant to serve the courses, serve the agency in terms of the lead. So I just have put myself in roles that I'm really good at and taken roles off my plate that I'm bad at. I'm bad at more things that I'm good at. I'm terrible at things like legal, accounting, finance, operations, et cetera. But I'm really good at the things I'm good at. And I've just made sure that my role in that ecosystem revolves around it. So that way there's not too much context changing or shifting or thinking about Oh, what am I working on this business versus that business? Yeah, that's key. I think that's where a lot of the productivity dies, whether it's an agency or anywhere, is just in the context batching, not necessarily in the actual content of the work. So within the agency, let's keep it specific to that and the clients you serve there. Is there a particular channel right now or even a, a strategy, I guess, that is just disproportionately returning more ROI compared to the effort that you're putting in? Is there something you're really excited about that's happening right now? Yeah, in terms of like acquiring clients or in terms of like channels we're running for clients, whether it be Facebook, email, SMS, like what's performing for them? If you have examples for both, let's do both. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. So in terms of client acquisition, I would say for a long time, like Twitter 
was really like the place in which we acquired like most of our leads. It also though probably was the place I was spending most of my time. So it's one of those things where it was the highest kind of ROI, but it's also the most time consuming. Since I've really focused on LinkedIn as well, and LinkedIn's bringing in a good amount of clients, although the clients are very different. On Twitter, there's a lot of like this kind of e-commerce, D2C kind of close-knit, small community where everyone knows everyone and there's a lot of that business. So that's cool. On the other side of LinkedIn, it's a lot more random. There's the e-commerce crowd, but there's also a lot of like info people and B2B people and SaaS people. So that's bringing in like a whole new mixture of leads where every single time I'm like, hey, we just got this public company in the education space. Like, can we work with them? Like, do we have a service that we can provide them? Like, are we able to adapt what we're used to doing for e-commerce brands into this? So it's been interesting. Like Twitter's been the core kind of ICP that we want. And LinkedIn's really been forcing us to think about like, what does the growth trajectory look like? Are we willing to expand to other markets outside of e-commerce? And it's an opportune time where like e-commerce over the past couple of years was fantastic. It was amazing. Unfortunately, the COVID and the pandemic was bad for a lot of things, but it was really good for our industry in terms of more people shopping online, more companies wanting and needing help. Whereas now it's cooled down a little bit. Companies are still obviously doing well, but more companies are facing headwinds and issues than they were previously. So it's allowing us the opportunity to think about where's the future? In the past five years been focused on e-com. Are the next five years focused on e-com or do we want to be more inclusive versus so exclusive? So I'd say like Twitter and LinkedIn, and then obviously like my newsletter are the big channels. But the interesting thing is I very rarely, if ever, it's, it's been a couple of times where I'll post, talk about the agency. I really don't talk about my agency that much. Most of the content I create is just genuinely around helping people. I help a lot of competitors. I help a lot of people that probably could be clients. I help a lot of peers and whatnot. So that's that piece. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, so if we go into a subset of that as well, the LinkedIn site's particularly interesting because one thing that I've seen you and other people do really well is using LinkedIn pages yes. as as something to actually grow and focus on. Whereas I think for a while there, it was like, yeah, the LinkedIn page, nobody really looks at that stuff. Maybe you could walk through really quickly how you use those pages, what kind of content you yeah. create, how you position that for clients and how that's supposed to funnel through in a perfect world, how that funnels through to some kind of acquisition. Yeah, it's funny. I probably am weird and maybe sick in the fact that like when people say something is really hard, I gravitate towards that. So I was growing my personal LinkedIn and I think it was the right place, the right time. It was doing pretty well. Everyone's like, that's great that you did that on your personal. I doubt you could have any success on a page. Pages are just too hard. I'm like, all right, cool. You weren't really challenging me, but challenge accepted. Let's see what we could do. So it was a double priority thing where like people said it was really hard and I wanted to see like, can the things that I've done on the personal brand side apply to pages? If yes, great. If no, what are the learnings? And then B2 with things like AI, I've got a big AI page with about 60 something thousand followers. It was just a really almost like a public diary and a way for me to uh, absorb content and consume content with the purpose of sharing. And fortunately over time, people started following it and sharing things and whatnot. So I created this flywheel. But I think the same way that you build a personal brand is very applicable to company pages, although people seem to treat them so differently. The way that you grow both, in my opinion, a page as well as a personal brand is there's three things. Number one is good content. There is no substitute in the world for good content. You have to have good content. Two is quantity. You have to have not just quality of content, you have to have a quantity of content. You need lots of good content. I actually made a post about this the other day. Like when you study most of the influencers on LinkedIn, 
they all have this cadence of doing like once per day. I think the best quote unquote practice is once per day. Everyone talks about like reach being throttled, this, this, and that. I've completely thrown that out the window and gone against the grain where I post my personal brand a minimum of three times per day. It's very weird. It's crazy. But I think that every time I, ch- I post, I give myself a chance to A, impact someone through education and awareness. And B, I give my chance go viral, right? Like I give myself the ability to be seen. So for me, it's a baseball metaphor. If I want more at-bats and it's okay if I only hit two or three or get on base two or three times, right? Like in the majors, getting on base two or three times, you're actually like one of the best players. So for me, I can do three posts a day and I do Monday through Sunday. I don't take weekends off. There's no breaks. There's no concept of that. A lot of people don't post on weekends, which I think for me gives me potentially more eyeballs. And then the last thing is with both of those, you need distribution. And I think most people spend all the time on one and two content, right? And lots of content, and they often ignore the distribution. So it's really hard to be good at all three, right? Most people pick quality content. So that's like the ecosystem. And what does distribution mean? I think that's the question I always get. It's literally as simple as sending to your friends, your coworkers, your family, or whoever it might be, people that you're paying to just engage with your stuff, like comment, reshare, repost, those types of things is so important. And it typically is within the first hour that a post goes live. That's the most important to get the engagement in. It's yeah. When you're talking about distribution, one thing that always comes to mind is people think that repurposing and distribution are the exact same thing. Whereas they're like, they're similar in that repurposing is transforming the format to apply to another channel. They treat distribution like it's just that, but it's that combined with what you're saying, taking it to other people or to other places where you can reliably get more help, get more eyeballs on that. In terms of like LinkedIn, Twitter, do you have, if you're posting three times a day, do you have a schedule that you stick to? What are those times that you post? Yes and no. So I never actually like quote unquote schedule anything. Like I don't ever use any tools to actually schedule something. For me, it's always been something where like, when do I have the time? When am I active? Because I think the part that going back to what you were just saying before is I think people repurpose and they post and then they check off their list. Well, I posted on LinkedIn, I posted on Twitter, I did it. And then they forget about it till the next day. And it's like, if you're just posting to post, you're never going to win. I've been there, done that. It does not work. It took me 10 or 11 years on LinkedIn to go from zero to 27,000 followers because I was posting to post. Hey, Twitter's going well. I'm just going to repurpose that. Later, I'm out. I did it for the day. And then in August of 2022, I'm just like, I'm sick and tired of this. Like I have to be present and active when I post so I can engage because what happens otherwise is like, maybe you comment on my thing two or three times. And if you don't ever see me like or reply back, you're just going to assume that I'm never going to engage. So your incentive to engage with my stuff diminishes the more that you do it and I don't reciprocate, right? So what I do is I find, okay, maybe right after this podcast on 15 minutes from now, I'm going to do a post and I'm going to have 10 or 15 minutes allotted to just engage into people. So I don't have a specific time. That being said, I have windows that I try to follow in between. And I have kids, I know you have kids, so obviously windows are just ideals. They're not ever ne- necessarily the thing that works, but I try to do a morning post. So let's call it somewhere in the ballpark of like 8 to 10 a.m. PST, somewhere around lunchtime. So if I was at like 8 a.m. PST, I might be posting the next one between 11 to 1 p.m. PST. And then I'm typically posting somewhere in the afternoon between like 3 to 4 p.m. And because now my following size is around 200,000 people, I don't think a little over 200,000 people, I have people that I know that are in different time zones. I've got people in the U.S. And with obviously in the U.S., I think we have four time zones. I'm trying to cater to each time zone. 
And then you ha- I also have people like in Europe and Asia and Africa. So I'm trying to get morning early enough if possible. So the people before they go to sleep, they engage with it. And then the people in the US, it's just their day. And then in the afternoon, it's when people are online overseas that hopefully I get them when they're early engaging. And I get the people before in the US before they sign off. So that's my buckets. It's like three times a day, morning, lunch, and afternoon, quote unquote, evening type of a thing. I could dive into this stuff for a while, but I want to pivot a little bit to email because I think that there's a unique perspective here from you. And I get the sense that there might be some things going on in email that are new because of whether it's AI or probably mostly because of AI. I'm just curious how you perceive the current state of email, especially for like e-commerce. What's working? What's not working? Yeah, that's a good question. I think like the more that we go along, the further we go along, the more technology available, it gives us the ability to hopefully personalize emails more and create more content and therefore hopefully better content. So I think like with where we are today and like where we're going, it's all about being able to create like more content for fewer people. Because today there's this trade-off where you want to be able to find that equilibrium between being personal, but not having so much personalization that the segment size or your audience size is like you're creating an email for 10 people. It just doesn't make sense or a hundred people. It just doesn't make sense. And I'm talking about brands that have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands and millions of people, right? They want to keep their list sizes, hopefully at minimum in terms of who we're sending it to in the thousands. But I think there's a world over time where like as the tech improves both on like the actual email platform themselves side, so things like Sendlane, Clavio, and otherwise, as well as things like ChatGPT or other AI tools, I think in the future, like there's like the ability to create really specific segmented content for like 10 or 50 people where like the ROI is there because the amount of work that you have to do is very minimal. So I think like there's this world, I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're going there with all these tools and the systems and whatnot that we're able to start creating way more hyper-personalized content beyond things like first name or whatever. That's, that's so overdone and exhausted now. Like it's really around like, how do we meet and send people content depending on where they're at in their life cycle or depending on where they're at in their customer journey. Because we have all this data that we're collecting, we know what they're looking at. We know what they've bought. We know the things that they're clicking on. So I think taking the data and being able to centralize it into like a data platform and be able to start wrecking really personal recommendations, the better. So one example might be like with this hat that I'm wearing, I think it's a Travis Matthew hat, right? And being able to say someone that looks at this hat that didn't buy it, being able to be like, okay, you looked at this hat, we're going to get down to not just what the product looks like on the specific variant level, but we're actually going to dynamically show you reviews and content that's specific to people that wore this hat. Here are other things that you should buy that are complimentary. So I just think like the way that it's going is like has to be way more personalized and almost to the point where like it's creepy that people knew that much about you, but it's relevant. Like I think with Facebook and stuff, the part that I'm missing there is like with all the things that are happening, I feel like the ads I'm getting aren't as helpful or relevant because they're not as personal. Before, whether they were listening to conversations or the targeting was great, I feel like the ads I was getting were reminders to me like, oh man, Mother's Day was coming up. You didn't buy your wife anything, right? Go buy her this jewelry that she's told you about a million times. So that's my quick thoughts. Yeah, I like the idea of it becoming more personalized over time because you could see the argument for that going in the opposite direction right now with AI, where a lot of people just decided, oh, cool, this can write my emails for me. Yeah, Those people don't really realize that if you just try to get an email written from AI, it's not going to be good enough (laughs) in pretty much any setting to send to anybody and have any meaningful impact. So I like the idea of it becoming more personalized over time, which kind of begs the question of how you're thinking through incorporating AI into the personalization process. If you, if I don't know if you thought through that or you're yeah. already using it, but I would love to 
dissect that. Yeah, for sure. Then one of the things I, I don't think I answered was like, right now, I think with email in the state that we're in, like, it's interesting. A lot of companies, SaaS companies, other companies, they seem to be really chopping either part of their marketing team, all their marketing team, or a lot of their marketing spend, where I feel like that's like kind of counterintuitive, right? They're like keeping engineers and they're keeping other people, but they're getting rid of like sales and marketing and support. Where I feel like right now, like with has really been like the saving grace for a lot of companies that are doing that. Like a lot of them are cutting off like the fire hose, like the ads or they're reducing spend because obviously everything that's going on. I get that, right? I sympathize with that. I get that. So with that, emails have really been like the saving grace for a lot of companies because you've already acquired the audience, the ability to sell to the audience through email, in my opinion, is probably the best channel. At this point right now, more about them as an email subscriber than you would otherwise or elsewhere. So I think like email right now is such a great channel to double down and invest into and obviously building out things like SMS, you could incorporate that too. SMS is crazy because nearly every single person is going to open it, whether they've opened it with intent or opened it to get rid of the notification, either which way they're going to see it. And either consciously or subconsciously, you're going to be top of mind for them. Consciously meaning that you open the email because you're expecting something or you want to receive it, and then you're clicking through. Subconsciously, it's just like, I want my phone to have no unread messages. I'm going to see a message from Blake and be like, okay, Blake is trying to sell me this thing. The next time that I need something that Blake sells, maybe subconsciously, I'm going to think about Blake, right? As if you were a brand or something, you were selling something. So that's that piece there that I wanted to say, like email is such a great channel, especially when times get hard because you can communicate directly with your audience and the actual cost of you doing that, it's marginal, right? It doesn't, it doesn't increase, like you would have to increase a paid ad budget if you want to reach more people. But going back to your question around like marketing, AI, personalization. So a lot of like what I'm doing right now using AI is more around like ideation, concepting, feedback, almost as like a second brain where I'm saying like, here's a list of subject lines I've set in the past that have done well. Give me ones that are similar like this and then give me ones that are like very different. I think the mistake that a lot of people make with subject lines in particular or like call to actions is like the subject line is almost the exact same. Like they're changing like one little variable that doesn't actually really change like the essence of the subject line. Like it doesn't change like the emotion that someone should feel when they open it. Like for example, this isn't the best analogy, but like if the first subject line was like ABC, someone might literally do like ABCD. It's like by adding D, you didn't really change it that much where maybe instead of doing ABC, the second version should have been XYZ, right? Where you should be different enough that you're evoking a different emotion or you're tying into something completely different. So I'm using it more around like analyzing surveys that I've had people fill out, like what are the things, what are the phrases, what are the words that people are saying? Like, give me the words that repeat the most and give me like a chart or like a tally of like what that looks like. So I'm using it to like analyze data, give me like different sentiment for subject lines that maybe I otherwise wouldn't do. And then just more things around like helping me repurpose content from like Twitter to LinkedIn or taking something I did in the past and just feeding it. Here are five polls that I ran. Which is better, HTML or plain text for emails? And that's one that obviously gets people going. People are very passionate and opinionated about. So I'm trying to teach them about like, give me these questions that you want answered. And then for if I have something in the past where I'm like, hey, use this copywriting formula of BAP before after bridge. And this was the one I wrote before. Replace this with a different example for SaaS or replace this for a different example for e-commerce. So for me, it's taking some more of the general, maybe dated information and helping make it specific or con contextualized is really kind of the way I'm using it. Yeah. So when you're, let's say when you're bringing on a new client, e-commerce clients coming into your agency and we're talking strictly email marketing, when you're, when you see somebody come in, 
what is the most average or most common thing that they're missing usually? Yeah. The most common thing that they're overlooking or they just don't have? Yeah, I think it's a couple things. I think for one, like their email collection is non-existent or their email collection is subpar. So the most common thing that people use in e-commerce is a, a pop-up, right? Most people know it takes over like the middle of the screen or the entire screen and it says, hey, Blake, obviously I want your name, but hey, Blake, give me your email for 10%, et cetera, et cetera, right? So they're either not doing that at all or that's just converting like the low single digits where it should be at least mid single digits, maybe high or maybe low double digits, I guess you'd say. So maybe somewhere in the ballpark of like five to 15%, 15% is really high, 5% typically the minimum that it should be converting. I think that's one. I think number two would be they don't have like the primary kind of core automation setup, right? Or if they do, they haven't updated or optimized or tested them in two years, three years, four years. It's crazy for me to be like, hey, when's the last time that you updated this flow? And they're like, I can't remember. Like whenever I made my Clavio, you go in or you look at their send lane, you ask them like, when was their account made? And it's like, yeah, this hasn't been updated since 2018. Like what's happening? So that's pretty low hanging fruit. I think the other one, like with the automations themselves is like a lot of the ESPs called the abandoned checkout, the abandoned cart, even though it's the wrong thing. So people don't realize that they should have like a browse abandonment, abandoned cart, abandoned checkout. There's one called the site abandonment that people are often missing. I think the next one is like, they're just batching and blasting. So they're not leveraging any segmentation. They're just sending it to anyone and everyone who's ever signed up. And I think the last one, again, there's a whole lot more, is like they're not sending enough campaigns per week. A lot of people as marketers or as humans don't want to receive a lot of emails themselves. So that prevents them from sending enough emails to their list. In theory, like basic economics and math says the more emails that you send, the more money that you're going to make. Like, again, th there's some potential pushback on that. But if you look at the average email that you make and you send more emails, maybe you slightly dip down. But like, for example, say you make just to keep the math really easy. Say on every email you send, you make $1,000, right? And you're only sending once per week. But in theory, like I might be able to tell you, I'm going to be able to do, instead of $2,000 a week, I'm going to be able to do like $1,750 a week for you. I send a second email in total. And then maybe if I'm sending three or four emails, instead of doing 1000 per email, because that's probably not realistic, Maybe we're doing like three to 5,000 email dollars off of like five or six emails. And again, there's like this equilibrium between like maximizing revenue and engagement and also minimizing churn. And all, by leveraging segmentation, if you send five campaigns a week, doesn't mean that myself or you, Blake, is going to receive all five emails. We might only be eligible to receive two or three. But the other part that people don't factor in is if your open rate is 30% and you send three emails, one person probably only opened one of those emails, right? It's just not enough to be top of mind, especially for products that have high AOVs. So if you think about someone selling like a mattress, Eight Sleep is one of our clients. They sell two to $4,000 mattresses. The amount of content and information and top of mind that you need to receive from a company like that, it's very heavy consideration. I need to receive probably emails for a couple of weeks, if not a couple of months, maybe even longer to be able to feel comfortable and trust a company enough that like they're legit, they are who they say they are, et cetera. My wife and I just bought like a $700 bed for our daughter as she's transitioning from her crib to her bed. And we wanted to get something different. I don't know what it was, but my wife couldn't even find the company online. Like they, they are like off the face of the internet. We bought this like four months ago. So the fact that like you're receiving emails over time, they're still there, they're reaching out. Like that builds a lot of trust because then my wife and I are like, what do we do? We're stuck with this thing that we need to like change. It's too big. We wanted to downsize it. Whenever we've used it, it's just been sitting in her room and we wanted to see 
if we could just exchange it for a smaller size, right? And we were willing to pay something, et cetera. So I think that's like the four or five things that's important about email that most people get wrong. I want to do some rapid fire around freelancing. Are you cool. down for that? Let's do it. All right. I'm just going to fire these off, take a few sentences for each and rattle through them. So why do you think top marketers are deciding to go freelance above going, staying in-house nowadays? I think it's a couple of things. I think flexibility and the earning potential. So I think flexibility, right? You got to work from anywhere. You have less hours. You're not really on the clock. You're being a little bit more paid for, let's call it performance. I guess in some ways you are probably paid hourly. Freelancers do hourly, you know, retainers, projects, whatever it might be. So I think there's more flexibility in terms of when you're actually working. I think there's more flexibility in terms of how you charge. And I think what you charge is another, right? If you're full-time in-house, you might only be making, let's say, $50 an hour, but it's actually costing your company a whole lot more. They have to pay for all these other insurance and benefits and other things to be compliant. A $100,000 a year employee that's taking $100,000, they're actually probably $110,000 to $130,000 cost for a business. So I think businesses are willing to pay more when they don't have to pay for all these other things. And I think like consultants and freelancers, if you're good and you're a top one, you're in demand and you have such a limited scope that companies would rather pay you more per hour and have you less hours than pay someone less money and have a bunch of time and the job's not going to be well done. So I just think like the notion around like top freelancers, top marketers, getting what they deserve and also producing really quality work, it really makes it a win-win for a company and the actual individual. How do you, how do you use virtual assistants for whether it's for freelancing or for your agency? Yeah. So at our t at our company, we have about 140 full-time employees. Full-time means everything from like they're in the U S kind of W2 employees to we've got people in the Philippines that are full-time for us, but they're more quote unquote kind of contractors just because it's very different working with U S and Philippine laws, but we leverage a lot of overseas talents to almost have more of like a 24 seven shop and also be able to balance that balance, like the really high cost labor of the U.S. folks with kind of really obviously well-paid Filipinos, but they're a lot cheaper in nature where instead of someone here making whatever it might be there, we might be paying, let's call it between five to $20 an hour, depending on what they're asking for. And for them, it's a great living. So it's a really nice win-win where you get really smart people, you get really kind people, you get really hardworking people. Um, and there's a little bit of arbitrage in kind of what you're paying versus what you're receiving. So it ends up being a win-win because when you think about, and I felt really guilty of this at first, like how can we pay someone five or $20? Like that's just, it doesn't make sense. And over there, when they tell you and share the gratitude for what it brings them, dude, they're living such a great life, being able to work from home where a lot of time these people are used to making a lot less and having to commute an hour or two per day. So. Again, like everything I do in my life and my business is like, how do we find a win-win where they're getting something great? We're getting something great. So we probably have a team of 30 or 40 people in the Philippines right now. And it's been amazing. Yeah, that's fantastic. Last one. Any tips or tricks as a freelancer to focus on maintaining long-term engagement? So like keeping clients happy, any tips there? Yeah, I think like A, doing as much as you can to over-deliver on performance and B, being really proactive and communicative. I think the issue a lot of people run into is if performance isn't great, they shy up and they don't reach out and they don't communicate and they're not getting ahead of it. Um, they're more reactive. And then it's from there, it's like, you're not performing well and you're not communicating well. Like, why are we doing this? So oftentimes, like if you're performing well, 
you could probably get a little bit away with not being asked to them. Although I think it's still really important to show face and to show up. It's one thing to say something. It's another thing to do it. And then it's another thing to show that you're actually doing it right. I remember this was on the agency side, but back in the day, we had this client that we were absolutely crushing for, but we weren't doing a great job at communicating. We weren't doing a great job at reporting. We weren't doing a great job in the follow-ups that it got to a point where the client had to make a hard decision. I was like, we've been working together for 18, 24 months. We love you guys. You're doing great work, but it's just, we don't see it. Like we see it in the account. We see it in our bank account. We don't see you guys in Slack. We don't see the emails. Like we just want to feel like you guys are there and that you guys are a part of it. So I think like integrating into the team and just being present is super important. 